Father, thank you for bringing us together this evening. I pray that your spirit would just fill this space, that we would be able to um, feel your peace and feel your closeness and generosity. I pray that you would just allow us to receive what it is that you have for us this evening. I pray that you would help us to see the desire that you have for us and your disciples to just truly understand what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. I pray that this would be an honoring time for you and that our group discussions would be honoring and glorifying to you and edifying and, and just helpful in our relationships and understanding each other and understanding how you're working in and through our lives. And so we give you this time and we thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay. So I don't have as many verses to read this time. Thanks, Eric. He's not even in here. Um, last time I read like 113 verses. I counted this time, and I'm like, oh, good, I don't have to read 113. And I'm thinking it's chapters 15 or 16, no, 15 and 16. Awesome. That's only going to be like 70 verses. Sweet. And then I said, I should actually look on the sheet to see exactly, make sure it's um, 15 and 16. Good thing I did, because then there was a few more verses for me to read tonight. But it's great, because it's not 113. So um, I wanted to start out just um, by kind of giving um, maybe like a little bit of an, uh, a sneak peek at some of the themes while I'm reading that you might be picking up on or making the connections to. And so I will read um, chapter 16, and then I will read, I'm sorry, I'll read chapter 15. <laughs> and then we'll talk about it a little bit. And then I'm going to read 16 in that little, that um, small portion of 17, and then we'll talk about that. And so um, in our themes that you will pick up on and you'll, I think, see, glaring at you, is just this idea of this kingdom posture, right? We have to remember that Jesus is traveling. He's, he's moving towards Jerusalem, and um, people are following him, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they're following him, and they're keeping a close eye on him, right? Because he's getting closer to Jerusalem. And um, these, these topics and these themes feel like they're getting a little bit heavier and more significant and serious, and they are. Um, you're right if you feel that. And so what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God is part of what you're going to see. Um, what is significant? Who's significant in the kingdom of God? Um, what does God love? And what should we love as followers of Christ? Um, and then also celebrating and um, what we celebrate. And then there's also these um, interesting themes about money, um, which we can also look at as our resources, and then stewardship, like what are we doing with it? Um, and then also pay attention to maybe some of the characteristics or virtues um, of what a follower of Christ or somebody who is um, in the kingdom of God, what that would look like and how that would come out and how we interact um, in the world. And so those are some of the themes or things that you might pick up on as we go along. So um, in your blue Bible, Luke, we're in chapter 15. In the blue Bible, it's on page uh, 875. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his, on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and look diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he arose and came to his, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, is my, this my son was dead and is live again. He was lost and is found, and they, again, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and, not, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this... But when this but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that, I, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so remember, we have to go back, I think, it's important to the very last um, verse before chapter 15 started. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So who's gathered? Who is with Jesus now and who is he speaking with? Pharisees and the scribes, tax collectors and the sinners, and then 15, um, 15 tells us that, and these, tax, or these um, scribes and these Pharisees are grumbling, like, why are you talking with these people? There's supposed to be this, se- this separation. And so who do you suppose is listening? Maybe all of them, right? Who do you suppose is hearing? There, might, there may be a difference here, right, between listening and hearing, okay? So there may be a group of people who are listening, or all of them are listening, but there may be another group or a group of these people that are actually hearing what he has to say. Because remember back, um, Jesus wants his people to hear him, understand and hear what he is teaching, and so these Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because Jesus is busting out of this cultural norm of this separation and these rules of engagement that they have established. And they are separated because Israelites, you know, they had the law and they were to be remaining clean and righteous before God. And so that's kind of how they functioned in their life and in how they socialized. And so this separation was an effort to remain clean and not come in contact with anybody that wasn't clean. And they focused on the things that they needed to do and get it, do it right versus getting it right. And that for the law, with the law, the Israelites, they became very self-focused um, as individuals and also as a country. And so everybody was kind of out. If you're not in, you're out. And that's what we see here. They don't like that Jesus is sitting with these people and the hospitality. He's eating with them and he's, you know, doing what he's not supposed to do. And so this whole idea of association is interesting because Jesus shares these three parables and the first two are stories about people that these Pharisees and scribes would never probably associate with. One is a shepherd. Shepherds are like low They're dirty, they're in the fields, and they're not um, people that are of matter to them. And then a woman. So in that society, a woman doesn't have a lot of social clout um, and probably not a real big deal for them to interact with. So Jesus uses these two particular people to share this story about being lost. And so I think it's important that we not lose sight of that, Jesus being very intentional with his stories. And so the lost sheep, there's 99 sheep that are left, and the shepherd goes off to find the one. That's how significant this lost sheep is. And then with the woman with the coin, she's searching everywhere. How long did she look until she found it? Because you know what? She probably did not have a means of income. 
on her own, and so every single penny mattered for her, and she needed to find it, so it was worthy of celebrating. And so Jesus is using these stories to show us what are the things that are worthy of celebrating. We celebrate those that are lost and when they are found. And those that are lost, we're talking about the people who are not understanding who Jesus is and choosing not to follow him. And then when they're found, they are repenting and they are turning to Jesus. So that's the difference between being lost and found. And so then we move on to this story of the prodigal son. And different translations have a different name for this um, parable. But it's interesting because um, I looked up the word prodigal, and I think it matters to know the difference if you're using it as a noun or an adjective. So if you're using it as a noun, um, it would be defined as a person who spends money in a recklessly extravagant way. Reckless being the key. And so an adjective is describing an attribute. And that would say having or giving something on a lavish scale. So it makes sense that they're naming this son as a prodigal because he's spending money in this reckless and extravagant way. The story tells us that. And so I think this is a pretty common, it's a story that a lot of people hear about. And I think oftentimes we probably, well, maybe we should place ourselves in it. At times we might see ourselves and identify ourselves as the son, the son or the daughter that went off and who knows, lost, like not interested in what mom and dad had to say or not interested in what Jesus, you know, had to say or we just were going to be independent and on our own, bye. And so oftentimes that's what we think of as a prodigal. And then somebody may identify themselves as the brother. Here I am at home, I'm doing all the right things, you've asked me to do these things, I'm the obedient kid, and what on earth are you doing? This kid squandered everything you gave him, and now you're going to have a party and celebrate that he's back? I've been here all along doing all the right things. What about me? And then maybe some of us identify with the father. And maybe it depends on different seasons of our life. We might identify with different characters of this particular parable. And so let's take a look at the son. The son, who is the prodigal, he asks for this inheritance. Now, typically an inheritance would come after somebody dies, right? But he's asking for it before, which is basically saying, I actually wish that you were dead. I'd rather have your money. Thank you. I'm pretty, my mom and dad are sitting here. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't really receive that well. So, you know, put that in mind. So that's where we're, we're at with this son and where his head is at. And so this son's priority is self and getting what he wants to do what he wants. And when things got really bad, like he's wanting to eat what the pigs are eating bad, he has this moment. He must have like had this, what, you know, proverbial rock bottom moment and then he comes to himself and he must be reflecting. The son realizes that he has um, sinned against God first and his father. He realizes it, but he also acknowledges it, which I think is um, key. 
And so he went home and he confessed his sin. He repented. He went away and then he turned from that life that he had chosen and squandering and then he went back to his father. And he recognized what he had done. And so I think about that. Like, he had this big, like, I mean, I look at him and I'm like, I didn't do that, right? I mean, I didn't take my stuff and go away and party and do all these things. But I think sometimes we have these little incremental setbacks or we, like, have these incremental things that maybe pull us further and further away from God. And it might not look as as extravagant or, like, over the top, but I do think that we have these incremental steps that we sometimes take when we're not paying attention that move us further and further from God. And so the question is, like, when do we stop and think, where am I right now? Where is my heart right now? How far away am I? Do we search our hearts to see what is important to us? And then we have the dad. I think sometimes, or some people would think like, what, dude, what are you doing? You didn't have to give him the inheritance. And um, why are you celebrating? He just, wait, all the money's gone. So it might be hard to understand the heart of this father. Feels like maybe he was taken advantage of. Maybe we feel like sometimes we're taken advantage of. Like, I feel like all I do is feed you. Nobody hugs me, says thanks anymore. So some of us maybe can identify with dad in that regard. And maybe we think, why did he not rebuke or punish or do something about the brother's behavior because his posture was not welcoming or not gracious? But now if we look at this father and we place the lens of God the father over this dad's responses to his son, things change, right? If that dad is acting as God the Father, all of the extravagant things like that we have been given, that maybe we squander, we're not paying real close attention to what we have and what we're doing with it, and the disappointment and the heartbreak, and then when we repent and turn back, we realize what we have or we realize how bad it's gotten and we need to go back home and we need our father. We can look at the father in a little bit different way. And I, this book, The Prodigal God, this is by Timothy Keller. Um, this is a really great book if you have not read it. Um, this morning I, we talked about it a little bit, but Prodigal God, so if we go back and we look at the definition of prodigal. So how can God be compared to that son? If you look at prodigal as an adjective, as an attribute, meaning having or giving things at a, in a lavish or at a lavish scale, well, that would be God, wouldn't it? I mean, he gives abundantly. And so that's why Timothy Keller explores this idea of the prodigal God. And so then let's go to the brother, right? He is jealous, he's resentful, he's not going to celebrate. 
there's some pride going on there. Can't see um, the blessings that he had from his dad. And so he's angry, doesn't understand it. I think sometimes we can be that way. Like, why on earth do they have that and I have nothing? Or why did they, you know, why are they blessed that way and I am not? And so sometimes I think that we can look outward um, and not pay attention to what we have. And then not wanting to accept his brother back home. And I thought about the mercy and the compassion and the grace that are afforded to us. And that's the expectation, being part of the kingdom of God, that we would afford others. And I reflect on my, with myself personally, like, compassion and grace, yes. But sometimes I'm so pragmatic with people. Like, I think about this prodigal God, or prodigal son, and I'd be like, dude, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, you are one decision away from this being better for you. And I do this at home. Sometimes I do this with people around me. I'm like, you're complaining about your life, but it doesn't have to be this way. Like, we're one decision away. I'm, I tend to put on my pragmatic hat before I put on my compassionate or my gracious hat. And so it's something that we need to pay attention to because God tells us to be gracious, to be compassionate, to celebrate when people come back. And so then, um, the prodigal God has kind of given us this grand story, and we have these three stories these, that are used to tell us the lost need to be found. And I think about Timberwood, you know, those of us at Timberwood Church, when you talk about over and over for the last few weeks, we've repeated our purpose, you know, statement, making more disciples for Jesus, right? Worshiping, serving, and celebrating together, making more disciples for Jesus. So reaching out, the lost need to come home. Then 16 pulls us in a little bit different direction, and we might be looking more at some of the attributes or the characteristics um, and the stewardship of what we have. So this is 875, chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had, who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended this, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it falls, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is, wonder, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before man, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is also abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easy for heaven and earth to pass away than one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted, his, his, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your, in, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, so they may, so he may warn them lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if, anyone goes to, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you, will any one of you who have a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all the things that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so we have this, in 16, this parable of this dishonest manager. So what are we doing with the resources we are entrusted to? Luke continues to use Jesus' teaching to be very deliberate and pointing to this and painting this picture of what the economy of the kingdom of heaven should look like. So we've talked about, you know, the importance of people who are lost, and now we're taking a look at um, the integrity of how we carry ourselves. So this manager is fired because he's mismanaging his master's resources, and his response is to look out for himself. He goes out and he makes these deals. There's some discrepancy about why he's making the deal or what the deal actually means. But the, the point is, is that he's going out and he's making sure that he has connections in case he has a need. So these connections and saying, hey, what do you owe? Give me half, um, is making these connections. He might need a job. Maybe one of them will give him a job. He might need someplace to stay. Now he's got a friend. He might, now he might have somebody to stay with. And so his former boss, this throws us a little bit, his former master commends him for his shrewdness. And that doesn't feel quite right. Why would he do that? Well, shrewdness, when you look it up, it's a quality of having or showing good powers of judgment. Well, it seems that his master or his boss probably um, didn't have the greatest or the highest level of integrity either. He is commending him for being clever, like, oh, good for you, like you are, you're taking care of yourself in this, but you still um, are a problem for me and you're still fired. But way to go taking care of yourself. And so that is the point that he is making when he says like they take care of themselves and though children of the light, these are the people, these are the ones that are showing the goodness that is inside. Remember back in chapter 12, I think it was, the eye is a window into what is inside and is there light inside? And so here again, this reference to being filled with light and not being shrewd or clever or conniving or going around, cutting corners. This association with light is this goodness and being Christ-like. And then in verse 9, they talk about using your worldly resources generously to the benefit of other people. 
And so what are you doing with what you have? God will honor in heaven those who are generous. Our resources like our time and our money and our talent, the gifts that we have been given, what are they and how do we use them? How do we bless others? The perspectives of gifts and the resources that God has given us, what do we do with them? There's this idea of this account that's going to be, take place. And so this is part of it. What do we do with what we have been given by God to bless others with? And verse 10 talks about these compromising of these little things. And if we compromise on the little things, will we compromise on the big things? Like those little white lies. Like a white lie isn't actually a lie, or is it? Right? So these little incremental pieces of, like, compromise can be a really slippery slope. And does one lie need to lead to the next lie to need, you know, lead to the next lie or compromise? And what are we going to do or what are we willing to do when nobody's actually looking? And then we go on to 13 and we're talking about what and who do we prioritize? What is important? You cannot serve God and serve these other things. It's like you're either a follower of Christ and you, you, got, and you want, that's your goal, your desire to follow him, or it's not. You can't want money and God. They don't go together. Give of what we have. Be generous with it. I've been exposed in the last couple of years to this, um, this author. His name is James Smith, and he wrote this book called um, You Are What You Love. And there's this I, theme going through here about our heart and the con condition of our heart and where we're at. What, pri what priorities do we have? And this is something that he says, we are what we love, and we, and we love what we worship. We are what we love, and we love what we worship. And so what is it that we worship? And what is it that flows from us? In verses 14 through 17, Jesus is making a point about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. And looking good to others, having this exterior like we've, we've, we've got this going on, but God knows what is on our heart, what is in their heart, knows that they might be not doing what they're supposed to be doing, benefiting themselves at the expense of other people. And he's reminding them that God sees what's in our heart. And that could be a real problem for later, right? Because he keeps talking about this judgment that is coming. And so it's a warning. And then we get to 17 through 18, or 16 through 18. And so this idea of the laws before John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, a, was 
the one that came in and ushered the way for Jesus, announcing that Jesus was coming. And so the law was in place before Jesus, and Jesus is teaching, and it doesn't undo what the law commanded. It doesn't undo what God had given them. Jesus' teaching is not contrary to the law of Moses. And in our translation, the ESV translation, um, verse 18 is separated out all by itself. And it has its own heading. And it's one verse with a heading, and then it has another section that's got a new heading. And so what our trained, you know, English brains want to do is say, oh, this is a separate, really important teaching, and Jesus is telling us something really important specifically about divorce and remarriage and adultery. But we need to p make sure that it's pinned back to 6, 16, 17, because Jesus is using as an example of this is a command that God had given in marriage, this relationship, but it's been compromised. And it's, and it's been compromised in a way that serves ourself. And so in looking at these scenarios of divorce and remarriage, if a person is divorcing because they want to be with that person and they're going to marry them, it's self-serving. And in our marriages, self-serving. And so I just, we talked about it this afternoon and went through, like, does your translation divide this? I think it's important that we remember that these headings are put in there by different, you know, people writing the different translations. And then we move through 19 and um, through 31 with the rich man and Lazarus. Interestingly, this is the only parable where Jesus actually names one of his characters in a parable. And um, Lazarus actually means helped by God. And so it's, we thought about today, we talked about this. I mean, Lazarus is a pitcher. There are dogs licking his rash. And so it is clear that he is in need. But who are we turning a blind eye to now? In our context, we don't have maybe Lazarus sitting, you know, by us with sores, a dog licking. We do see people that have a sign, you know, they're out of a job, they need help. So we do have a visual representation of people in need like Lazarus around us. But what about the people that this need is not necessarily visible? Like this looks great, but there's something going on inside. But we don't get close enough and engage with somebody enough to know that they might be in need of some kind of support. And so our challenge is to think about, from our own perspective, who are those people that are in need? Who are the Lazarus is around us? And what is our perception of them? How easy is it to say, well, of course you 
don't have food or you made all this string of you know, decisions, bad decisions, and now this is what you are faced with. I mean, I miss pragmatic, right? You're one, you're one good decision away from a, you know, it getting better. And so what is our perception of people and why they may be in need of support? We don't always know the backstory. In fact, we very rarely know the backstory of what is going on with somebody and the circumstances of what their needs are. So this story is about a rich man who suffered the consequences of being very self-focused. It's like the parable of the rich fool in a, a few chapters back. So, the ri so this rich man is burning in Hades, and he's still looking out for himself. Hey, Abraham, could you go get Lazarus? Lazarus. Why do I want to say Lather Lazarus? Why do I do that? I don't know why. Could you get him? Could you go get him and have him just dip his finger in, touch my tongue? Because I'm like literally, like this is terrible. I can't. I need. I need water. So still looking out for himself, and then he wants him to send somebody to warn his brothers. And, they talk, and then it talks about this great chasm. Somebody in this afternoon said that chasm is greed. That, ca that greed creates this chasm when we, don't, when we are not generous with our resources and seeing and using what we have to bless others. So Lazarus is feeling received and loved and accepted. He's in the arms of Abraham, which is... Like, it's like a metaphor for that reception, that warm reception. He didn't get what he needed here, and now he's going to get everything that nobody gave him here. And then Abraham's reply to this rich man is like, your people have heard the prophets. They can read about this. If they haven't turned now, what makes you think that a dead man coming and telling them will make them repent? Again, it's this idea of how many times you have to hear something before we figure it out in that posture of humility and openness. And so there is this idea of greed and what we are doing with what we have. And there's a few other things that James Smith had said that have really stuck with me in particular. Um, he said, we are not as much defined by what we know, but by what we love. And we are what we love, and we love what we worship. And he also says, we are defined by our loves. And I think that gives us an opportunity to reflect on what do we reflect? What is coming out of us? Is the light in us what is motivating our actions and our interactions with other people? And so these are heavy stories that Jesus is sharing. And they are. 
they're getting heavier. And so he goes on and he tells the disciples in chapter 17, the temptations are real and they are going to come and you need to guard yourself and you need to help each other out. The temptations will be there. It can be a slippery slope and we have an obligation And if we have an obligation to each other, what does that look like? What's our our posture? What's our intention when we're we're helping somebody out? I remember last year Eric talking about, you know, this exact thing. We have this obligation to one another. And so if I'm doing something, I remember him saying, if I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing or is offensive, I want somebody to tell me. And so what does that actually look like? Without judgment, right? That's the hard thing. So what makes it not about judgment and about the heart and wanting to be, you know, keeping our brothers and sisters accountable? And do we dare other people that we would never say, hey. And then he goes on to talk about forgiving And I think that this um, forgiveness that he's talking about maybe is reconnected to this idea of judgment. And if we are not forgiving, are we holding judgment or are we placing judgment or resentment and what that does to our relationships? And ultimately, only God will pass the final judgment on sinners and we are all sinners. And then after hearing these stories, I can't imagine those disciples going, oh my goodness, are are you kidding me? Like, this is too much. This is too much. And he, they ask him, increase our faith, like do something to make us strong so we can do this. And he says, even the smallest faith can be put to good use. He heals people and he cleanses people with very little faith. And so even a little bit of faith can be put to good use. I mean, it starts somewhere, right? It starts somewhere and then it grows. I think about kids, you know, going to Sunday school or learning from mom and dad. Like, simply, Jesus loves you. And how does that grow and how does that flourish and become bigger? by trusting in him. And so even a little bit can be used for good. And then we have this unworthy servants. So we're to see ourselves as servants, right? And do what we are commanded to do. But we are not to require or expect or ask for accolades We like rewards, right? We like rewards. We like to know that we are doing the good thing or the right thing or a good job. And so we seek that affirmation. I mean, how many times have I asked my kids, like, I I need you to do this for me. Well, what's in it for me? Um, I will feed you. (laughs) Maybe. They would probably tell you I actually don't feed them, which is actually probably true. Um, 
but like, or even in the classroom, I just remember, you know, why, you know, kids asking, why, why? Do I get points if I do that? Like, no, you get to learn. <laughs> so we always want like some kind of reward or something for what we do. And he's basically saying, no, do what you're supposed to do and you will be rewarded later. And it goes back to that brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? I've done all of these right things and you've not acknowledged me and thrown me a party. And he says, you've been blessed. You've had all the things already and you, do, you don't even recognize it. And so Jesus has left some heavy things to think about, some heavy things for everybody to hear and contemplate what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, what it looks like, how do we navigate through it, what posture do we bring to our interactions with people, what priorities do we bring into our interaction in the kingdom of God. And so the questions that you have in your groups will really, I hope, be able to get you into some conversations that will allow you to just dig in and talk about what does it actually look like when we are aligned and have, you know, the vision of what God intends for us in his kingdom and what Jesus is teaching us. What does that actually look like? How does that actually carry out even for us today? So we'll be back a little bit before 8.